Book of Mormon Prophecy, a podcast series by Avraham Gileadi, Ph.D. 20. The Latter-day King of Assyria Based on Jesus' key that all things Isaiah spoke, having been and shall be, will an end-time king of Assyria conquer the world as his predecessors did? Welcome to podcast number 20, The Latter-day King of Assyria. And we've talked about the warrior and the tyrant, remember, in previous podcasts, how his spoil is taken away and his captives are removed and out of his possession by the end-time servant, but also by the kings and queens of the Gentiles, all of those who rescue and restore peoples of the house of Israel, the elect of Israel. And here we kind of get the idea where the Lord commissions the king of Assyria, the, the latter-day king of Assyria. So what Isaiah has done here in these Isaiah chapters that are also recorded in the Book of Mormon, he's kind of characterized these ancient kings of Assyria, there was a succession of them, but as a single king of Assyria, the main guys, the main honcho, so to speak. And, of course, there were some worse than others, but in an end-time scenario, he takes all those ancient kings of Assyria, in fact, also the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and he compounds them into one composite entity, a composite person, namely God's Assyrian tyrant, an end-time tyrant, who's like an antichrist or an arch-tyrant who conquers the world in the end-time. On the heels of the apostasy of God's people as it was anciently, that is the catalyst, as we mentioned in the previous podcast, it starts this whole world conquest by the Assyrian archtyrant going. So here in Isaiah 10, verses 5 through 7, Jehovah hails the Assyrian tyrant because he uses him as his instrument of punishing the wicked of his people and of all nations, but beginning with his own people as they invade their promised land. This chapter is one of the chapters, and there are several chapters here that are quoted in the Book of Mormon verbatim. Chapters 2 through 14 of the Book of Isaiah are quoted in the Book of Mormon. That has to be there for a purpose, not just because of historical interest. It's so difficult to engrave in these things on plates. If it wasn't for some end-time use, that's the way Book of Mormon prophets use the prophecy of Isaiah, is to depict an end-time scenario, quoting Isaiah, nuancing it, interpreting Isaiah, explaining something about it, making it clearer to us, to our understanding, then there's a purpose other than just putting it on plates. And that purpose, of course, is the thing for which I found the literary proof in the book of Isaiah that it is an end-time scenario that uses historical names as code names for end-time nations and people. And so it is with Assyria, the first world power to conquer the ancient world by military force. is going to have a counterpart in the end-time where a power from the north, a world nation from the north, or an alliance of nations from the north, conquers the entire world. And of course, with today's technology, that's very possible. And it is true that God's people today are declining, of course, and the whole generation is growing up and leaving belief in Christ and so forth. So he says, Hail the Assyrian, the rod of my anger. And right there we have several things going on. He's greeting the Assyrian king. He raises him up to do his work. And he calls him the rod, number one, the rod of his anger. And throughout the book of Isaiah, He's depicted as personifying God's anger. And wrath is the next line. He's a staff, my wrath in their hand. 
he personifies God's wrath and anger with his apostate people and with the wickedness of the world in general, of course. He calls them the rod of my anger, he's a staff, my wrath in their hands. So he's both a rod and a staff, the rod and staff of punishment with which the Lord smites his people. The Lord God is not an angry or wrathful God, but there are consequences or covenant curses to breaking his covenant or breaking his laws. And so he commissions them. It says, I will commission him against the godless nation, appoint him over the people of my vengeance or deserving of his vengeance. And the godless nation, the people of his vengeance, here is a reference to God's own people. Anciently in that day, it was people of Israel. Today, it is the Latter-day Saints or the, the people who are the, the covenant people today. Those are the ones he's singling out here in relation to Assyria's conquest of the world. Isn't that interesting? And the Lord commissions him and appoints him. Those are also important words because the Lord also appoints his servant as an antidote to the king of Assyria, as we'll see in just a little while. Appoint him over the people of my vengeance to pillage for plunder, to spoliate for spoil. Now Isaiah, there was a time when Isaiah could not prophesy outright. Was, he was under constraint from King Ahaz. So he started calling his sons by prophetic names. And that is one of the names he called son. And Maher Shalal Chashbaz means hasten the plunder, hurry the spoil, signifying that Assyria would be conquering the people of God. And the other son he named Sha'ar Yeshuv, a remnant shall return or a remnant shall repent. So at the same time that he gave an ominous sign in the name of his son, one son, he gave another sign saying, you know, kind of balancing it out, saying there will be a small remnant that will repent and they will be spared. So Isaiah goes on to say, to pillage for plunder, to spoliate for spoil, to tread underfoot like mud in the streets. Now remember that scripture about us, Latter-day Saints, from the Doctrine and Covenants, for not savers of men will be assaulted as lost as savor, which is good for nothing but to be trodden underfoot of men. Well, here you have a similar thing and from the book of Isaiah. So obviously these people were not acting as saviors of men or were even attempting to do so, and this is going to be their consequence for them. And he goes on to say, Nevertheless, it shall not seem so to him, to the king of Assyria, this arch-tyrant. This shall not be what he has in mind. His purpose shall be to annihilate and to exterminate nations not a few. So he thinks the world is too populated, so he's going to commit genocide. And you've heard of that, you know, the Agenda 21 thing. And so you, you see that he's the guy that's going to do it. So this person is going to even catch them by surprise and do it on his own terms, not the current terms that, or the agenda that's currently trying to be implemented. We go on and read verses 13 and 14 of Isaiah 10, again quoted in Second Nephi, chapter 20, 13 and 14. A world conqueror. Now, listen for the pronoun I, the first person pronoun, where he's boasting. The word I appears seven times in these verses. He said, the king of Assyria said, I have done it by my own ability and shrewdness, for I am ingenious. I have done away with the borders of nations. I have ravaged their reserves. I have vastly reduced the inhabitants. I have impounded the wealth of peoples like a nest, and I have gathered up the whole world as one gathers abandoned eggs. Not one flapped its wing or opened its mouth to utter a peep. So there you have it. You have him doing away with the borders of nations and making a one-world government, so to speak, with him as the king. 
And he's gathered up the whole world and he's pounded the wealth of peoples like a nest. So what does that strike you as? You remember Jesus saying in the New Testament, what is the profit of man if he gained the whole world and suffered the loss of his own soul? This is of similar character to Hitler in, in World War II. He wants to conquer the whole world. And he's also like the thief in the night. Jesus' second coming is compared to a thief in the night. But, of course, the Lord is not a thief in the night, and he doesn't conquer the world this way. The thief in the night actually is the king of Assyria who immediately precedes the coming of Jehovah, second coming of Jesus Christ. He's the thief in the night. He attacks the world after he makes peace treaties and so forth when the world is least expecting his launching this war. We read from chapter 13 of the book of Isaiah about the king of Babylon. It's the same character because he uses the same metaphors of the rod and the staff and all of that as he does in chapter 10. It's just a different aspect or a different persona, a different uh, slant on the king of Assyria, the arch-tyrant. This is the same as the servant is depicted under several different personas. He's a composite of them all, of ancient biblical heroes. So the arch-tyrant, the king of Assyria, Babylon, is kind of a composite of both the evil kings of Assyria and the evil king of Babylon. There we read in Isaiah 13, 4 and 5, which is quoted in 2 Nephi 23, 4 and 5, Jehovah's army of nations. So it's an Assyrian alliance. It's not himself alone. His hark a tumult on the mountains as of a vast multitude. Hark an uproar among kingdoms as of nations assembling. He's gathering these nations. Elsewhere, he's compared to an ensign who gathers an alliance of wicked nations against God's people and conquers the world by them. So he gets them all stirred up, kind of like we discussed how Amalekiah stirred up the Lamanites against the Nephites. They justify themselves in committing this worldwide genocide. We also have these first two phrases in parallel. Hark, a tumult on the mountains as of a vast multitude. Hark, an uproar among kingdoms as of nations assembling. So we have hark and hark, tumult and uproar, mountains and kingdoms, and a vast multitude and nations assembling. So this tells you that the word mountains there is a metaphor for kingdoms. It's on the mountains, yes, but it's also among nations or kingdoms that we're talking about. Jehovah of hosts is marshalling an army for war. So it's the Lord doing this. Yes, it is the enemy of God's people and of the world, basically, but it's really the Lord himself who's orchestrating these events. They come from a distant land beyond the horizon, Jehovah and the instruments of his wrath to cause destruction throughout the earth. And this is the destruction that we've been talking about that is part of the Lord's great and marvelous work. It consists of destruction and deliverance, both. It's not just one or the other. It was the same at the Lord's coming to the Nephites. You remember there was horrendous destruction, a great and marvelous destruction on all the land right before the coming of the Lord. And he delivered his people and he healed them and so forth. At the Lord and the instruments of his wrath, because the king of Assyria, or the king of Babylon in this case, personifies the Lord's wrath. He is wrath itself, so to speak. He's angry. He's so angry. And we can look back at the Second World War and see how angry uh, Hitler was and vengeful and so forth. And at the slightest pretext, uh, they launched their attack on this nation and that nation and so forth. All right, then we go on to read in verses 6 through 8 of Isaiah 13 also quoted in 2 Nephi 23, Jehovah's Day of Judgment. So all of this is orchestrated by the Lord, and it is part of a, called the Day of the Lord, or the Day of Jehovah, 
It's a universal day of judgment throughout the earth, beginning with his judgment of his own people, who are the covenant people today, namely Latter-day Saints. Lament, for the day of Jehovah is near. It shall come as a violent blow from the Almighty. Then shall every hand grow weak, and the hearts of all men melt. They shall be terrified in throes of agony, seized with trembling like a woman in labor. Men will look at one another aghast, their faces set aflame. How can people's faces be set aflame and this whole world be affected like this unless it's a nuclear war? And of course, that is what it is. Isaiah compares it to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, as we'll see in a moment, which was a hail of fire and brimstone rained out of the sky. And of course, today's weapons of mass destruction accomplish this very thing quite easily. So the whole world is terrified, in other words. For the wicked, it really is doomsday. There is no deliverance for them because they chose not to repent after being warned. And the Lord always gives ample warning for these things. But there are many who just, among his own people, even they who choose not to repent of their transgressions. Right, in Isaiah 13, we continue in verses 9 and 10, also quoted in 2 Nephi 23. Sinners are destroyed. Now watch who it identifies as Babylon, because the chapter heading, chapter 13 of Isaiah, is an oracle concerning Babylon. So these verses in chapter 13 are really identifying and defining who Isaiah means by Babylon. I know we have our own ideas about what Babylon is, and they may coincide or may not coincide with Isaiah's. But Isaiah has his own definition of who Zion is and who Babylon is. And Babylon, as you'll see here, is the world at large and in its wicked state, and the sinners and those who don't repent. It says, The day of Jehovah shall come, the day of judgment, a worldwide day of judgment, a time of destruction, mass destruction, a third world war, if you like. The day of Jehovah shall come as a cruel outburst of anger and wrath. And of course, anger and wrath are the two things that the king of Assyria or the king of Babylon personifies. To make the earth a desolation that sinners may be annihilated from it. And of course, there you have the earth and sinners as the subject of this prophecy. So those are part of the definition of what Babylon is. Stars and constellations of the heavens will not shine. When the sun rises, it shall be obscured, nor will the moon give its light. We have cosmic cataclysm going on. And of course, a nuclear war would certainly seem like cosmic cataclysm because <laughs> it is mass destruction on a scale that affects not just the earth, but also the heavens and causes pollution and perhaps earthquakes everywhere, nearby, whatever the case may be. And reading on in verses 11 through 13, the wicked are punished. He says, I've decreed calamity for the world, punishment for the wicked. There again, he's continuing with his definition of what constitutes Babylon, according to his definition or God's definition of the term, the world and the wicked. I've decreed calamity for the world, punishment for the wicked. I will put an end to the arrogance of insolent men and humble the pride of tyrants. There are more Babylonian subjects, insolent men and tyrants. All those who emulate the evil tyrant, the arch-tyrant. As I mentioned before, as the Lord is an exemplar for the righteous, this arch-tyrant, king of Babylon or king of Syria, is a, an exemplar of the wicked of the earth. And all people on the earth more or less emulate one or the other. They're either in one camp or the other. 
They're trying to be humble and manifesting godlike traits or kindness and love and so forth and care of others. Whereas on the other hand, there are those who lift themselves up over others and judge them and so forth. So you get the idea. And then he says, I will make mankind scarcer than fine gold, men more rare than gold of Ophir. Now, the prophet Isaiah doesn't have terminology like we do of telestial, terrestrial, and celestial categories of people, but he does use minerals and stones to indicate different degrees of glory, like common stones would be a terrestrial category, semi-precious metals and stones would be terrestrial, and fine gold and precious stones and metals would be that kind of imagery would represent and symbolize a celestial category of people. He's talking about those who survive, right? Mankind is going to be made scarcer than fine gold. Men more rare than gold of Ophir was, was high-quality gold in those days, very refined. I will cause disturbance in the heavens when the earth is jolted out of place by the anger of Jehovah of hosts in the day of his blazing wrath. So even the earth itself is going to be jolted out of place by the immense destruction, by the nuclear blast or whatever it may be, and probably also cosmic disturbances from the asteroids or meteors that, that will be going on at the same time, kind of like Sodom and Gomorrah anciently, or literally. Be disturbance in the heavens. But the key words here are by the anger of Jehovah of hosts in the day of his blazing wrath. But the king of Assyria is the one who personifies the anger and the wrath, right? So, and Or king of Babylon in this case. So the day of the Jehovah's blazing wrath is also the day of the king of Assyria. He has his day, as it were, and is part of the day of Jehovah, part of the day of judgment of Jehovah upon the entire earth. You see how all this is so consistent and so beautiful, so beautifully described, and when you start reading between the lines and see code names and word links and so forth in the book of Isaiah, it all starts to kind of gel together and make a lot of sense, more sense than just reading without recognizing what these terms really mean. And then he kind of sums up this destruction, same chapter, Isaiah 13, verse 19, quoted in 2 Nephi 23, 19. Babylon is destroyed as Sodom. And Babylon, the most splendid of kingdoms, the glory and pride of Chaldeans, or Babylonish people, the inhabitants of Babylon, shall be thrown down as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And that was with a rain of fire and brimstone. And this time it's going to be the equivalent, seemed like weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons that instantly destroy entire cities and turn them into flying chaff, as Isaiah says elsewhere in his book. But also, this is Sodom and Gomorrah is a link to chapter 1 of Isaiah. This is chapter 13. Chapter 1 of Isaiah, where God's own people are compared to Sodom and Gomorrah, which tells you that, number one, they're going to get that bad. There will be a lot of Sodomites among them, number one. And secondly, they're going to be destroyed as Sodom and Gomorrah. That is what's happening here. But then we also saw how many Gentiles, which are the Lord's covenant people today, and whom he's talking about, how they join the great and abominable church. They refuse to repent at some critical point in church history, so to speak. And they refuse to repent, and they end up uniting with the great and abominable church and fighting against Zion. So we have that very thing here, using the imagery of Babylon. Of course, the great and abominable church is the harlot Babylon, 
in both the Isaiah chapter 47 and also in the book of Revelation. It's a harlot Babylon. But as I mentioned before, Nephi in his day in the Book of Mormon uh, can't call it Babylon because it was Babylon that conquered the world in Lehi's day. It was still an existing political power. Therefore, he had to use other imagery, which is like the whore, the great and abominable church, or the whore of all the earth, and so forth. You get the idea? I think you may know what I'm talking about. Nephi has to resort to other imagery. The end result is the same, whether it's called Babylon, the whore, or the great and abominable church. They're overthrown as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And that is the, the end result of all people of a celestial nature, or worse, of perdition. Well then, uh, the Lord also uses the king of Assyria and or the king of Babylon as an instrument, but he also provides for deliverance from that evil power. Yes, he uses the wicked to destroy the wicked, but then he also makes an end of those wicked who did destroy the wicked. And so he makes an end of the Assyrians, or the Babylonian alliance, or Assyrian alliance, whatever he represents it as, he makes an end of them as well, as he says in chapter 30 of Isaiah, verses 30 through 32, where they are fought in mortal combat. In the end, he says, Jehovah will cause his voice to resound and make visible his arm, descending in furious rage. Well, in the book of Isaiah, there are two voices. The king of Assyria is the voice of the wicked, and Lord's end-time servant is the voice of the righteous. And they personify these terms. And the Lord's servant is also his arm, as we mentioned, when the Lord bears his arm in the eyes of all the nations. So when he says, Jehovah will cause his voice to resound and make visible his arm, sending in furious rage, it's his servant who's doing this, and his arm is involved in the destruction of the Assyrians. That's very similar to when Moses led the armies of Israel into the land of Canaan and there was a time, I, I believe, when they fought the Amalekites, and Moses raised his arm, right? And when Moses kept his arm raised, the Israelites kept defeating the Amalekites. But when Moses got tired and his, lowered his arm, the, the Israelites started losing. So he got a couple of helpers to hold his arm up. This imagery comes from that. Uh, it's like signifies divine intervention, because the Lord is going to intervene with his arm in this situation and use his servant to put down the king of Assyria or this arch-tyrant, kind of like David defeating Goliath anciently in David's day. Both Isaiah and, and, and the Old Testament and Book of Mormon has beautiful types and shadows, beautiful precedents to show what the Lord is going to do in the end time. And he does nothing but what he's, it follows the patterns of the past. And that is what's so beautiful about these scriptures from Isaiah. Everything that happens in the end time as a type or precedent in the past that we can draw on for, for this kind of imagery and to see how things will fall out. So we have an amazing guide of what's going to happen in the end time in the book of Isaiah. And if people just simply understood that, they'd be amazed. Well, you're beginning to understand it, at least. Jehovah will cause his voice to resound and make visible his arm, descending in furious rage with flashes of devouring fire, explosive discharges and pounding hail at the voice of Jehovah, the Assyrians will be terror-stricken, they who used to strike with the rod. At every sweep of the staff of authority, when Jehovah lowers it upon them, they will be fought in mortal combat. 
So they who used to strike with the rod, the rod being the king of Assyria, or the king of Babylon, that the Lord used to punish the wicked. But there's also another rod and staff, and that's the Lord's end time servant. There's two rods and two staffs in the book of Isaiah. And the one is a righteous one and the other is a wicked one. There are two voices, the voice of the king of Assyria or the wicked, and there's two ensigns, and there's two hands, the left hand and the right hand. So as you get into the book of Isaiah, all these terms begin to have meaning, way more meaning than you just passed over before when you read, just used to read chapter by chapter. But then we go to Isaiah 31, 8 and 9. There were actually there fought with a sword not of men. So there's two great armies of Assyria that die, that perish. One perishes in mortal combat after they have done their dirty work. They themselves are terminated and they're fought in mortal combat. Of course, the wars of the Israelites and the wars of the Nephites are great types for putting down the Assyrian armies that conquer the world in the end time. But also there's going to be divine intervention as there was in the time of King Hezekiah when 185,000 Assyrians died in one night. So that is also going to happen, something very similar in chapter 31 of Isaiah, verses 8 and 9. There's a sword not of man devours the Assyrians. It says, And Assyria shall fall by a sword not of man, a sword not of mortals shall devour them. Before that sword they shall waste away, and their young men melt. Their captains shall expire in terror, and their officers shrink from the ensign, says Jehovah, whose fire is in Zion, whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Of course, Zion and Jerusalem are signifying the old and new Jerusalems, but the word ensign here is a metaphor or a, a code name of the Lord's end time servant, as we have seen in other, uh, we actually saw that in chapter 11 of Isaiah, where the sprig of Jesse stands for an ensign to the peoples. Of the world. And then, of course, we have the, the word sword and fire. The king of Assyria personifies God's sword, but so does the servant. And the same with the fire. The king of Assyria personifies God's fire, and so does the servant. One is a righteous one, and one is a wicked one. Amazing polarization or juxtaposition between these two great heroes of the end time. Well, one is a villain, one is a hero. And finally, we go to Isaiah 14. Verses 4 through 7, quoted in 2 Nephi 24, 4 through 7. And here we go back to the warrior and the arch tyrant. How the tyrant has met his end and tyranny ceased. And the tyrant, is, as I said, is this antichrist of the last days, the king of Assyria, the king of Babylon. How the tyrant has met his end and tyranny ceased in the world, that is. Jehovah has broken the staff of the wicked, the rod of those who ruled. So he being the staff and the rod that the Lord used to punish the wicked is now broken. He's of no more use to him. And then it says, Him who with unerring blows struck down the nations in anger, who subdued peoples in his wrath by relentless oppression. There we have again the words anger and wrath that are attributes of this arch tyrant, this antichrist of the end time. Now the whole earth is at rest and at peace. There is jubilant celebration. So after this war to end all wars, which lasts several years in the earth, there finally comes an end. There will be the most horrific suffering and misery of peoples that have ever been experienced on the earth at any time at all. And so, of course, there's going to be jubilant celebration when it's all over. But I remember as a child being born during the Second World War. When that Second World War ended, 
there was truly jubilant celebration. It had been going on for five years, and or six years even. And when it was finally over, people were going crazy. They were so glad that it was over because it was a horrible time of barely existing, staying alive. And so in summary, God raises up an end-time king of Assyria or king of Babylon to destroy the world's wicked. Time frame is the end time when God uses an arch tyrant, this arch tyrant, to punish the wicked of the world, beginning with God's people. Moving forward, do we believe prophecies of an arch tyrant may apply to our day? Well, do you think so? Many people say, oh, that's not going to happen in my day. You hear that all the time. Well, take a look. Take a look outside your narrow view and tell me if this is not following the patterns of the past. Next time, how do Book of Mormon prophets define hardening of the heart? Because the Lord and the Scriptures have their definition of what that means. And you might be surprised. We've already given you hints of that. And the recommended reading and listening is Isaiah Decoded, Ascending the Ladder to Heaven. And we'll see you next time, hopefully. And please share this with others. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today. Join us next time when we learn what is hardening the heart. Why does the Book of Mormon define a key spiritual principle on which his people's eternal destiny depends as whether or not they harden their hearts?